G'day, my name's Andrew. There's a quote that I read this week. It says this, There is not a more profitable undertaking for any country than to declare war on the United States and to be defeated. Now that line is from an old book called The Mouse That Roared, and it's uh, in it the, the United States is attacked by the smallest country in the world. It's a fictitious nation. It's the Grand Duchy of Fenwick. They send 20 soldiers across the Atlantic armed with bows and arrows and dressed in chainmail, all set for the invasion. They're confronting the world's superpower armed to the teeth with the most sophisticated weapons known to mankind. And they're doing it with a small band of medieval soldiers. Uh, now the mouse that roared, it's a satirical comedy, which is why it doesn't sound like an incredibly smart idea to invade the United States with 12 medieval soldiers. They're hopelessly outnumbered. They're just kind of hopelessly hopeless. Uh, now, sometimes as followers of Jesus, we might feel that way. Like we've been sent out to battle a superpower with not much more than sticks and stones, kind of hopelessly hopeless. I mean, you're, you might be serious about following Jesus, but the people that you work with or the people in your flat, they just don't seem to care. Jesus to them looks so unimpressive. And that's to say nothing of Christianity in the church, which is actually seen as the pro one of the problems in the world rather than part of the solution. Or maybe this morning you're someone who's looking in from the outside, and if you are, we're really glad that you joined us. Uh, but you're there looking at this thing called the church, uh, and you're thinking, I just don't get it. It looks like an odd bunch of people getting together at what it would be like prime sleep-in time, right? doing some religious stuff that I just don't quite understand. It's just so unimpressive. And so, if you follow Jesus, are you backing a dud, hopelessly hopeless? Or, if you're looking in from the outside, are you thinking, why would I stick around? Is Jesus really worth my time? Well, what we see today in 1 Samuel is that what might look unimpressive, what might look hopelessly hopeless, well, it's actually mighty. In reality, it's the power of God. See, it's through meekness and weakness that God changes the world. It's through meekness and weakness that God changes the world because that's God's pattern. Time and time and time again, the weak are used by God to defeat the strong. He uses the lowly and the humble to defeat the proud and the mighty. Uh, and he does this over and over again to show his power. Through meekness and weakness, God changes the world. Now, this is our fifth week in the book of 1 Samuel. And as I've said each week, uh, the Bible is one story. It's, it's one story of, of God's plan to fix up a broken world. And it's a story that extends from creation to new creation. And central to God's plan is a king and a kingdom. And the Old Testament prepares us to meet the great king. And it gives us a glimpse into how his kingdom works. Now today in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17, we finally meet King David and we see clearly God's plan that through meekness and weakness, God changes the world. Now Israel, they've had their first king, uh, the very impressive Saul, tall and handsome, brave and successful. If Saul were around today, he'd be a prime candidate for high office in the land, a president or a prime minister or maybe even captain of the All Blacks. But he has a crucial flaw. You see, Saul, he, he won't listen to God's word. Saul thinks that he knows best. And so what has happened is that God has rejected Saul as the king of his people. And it's kind of Groundhog Day again. Israel, again, find themselves with another leadership crisis. It'd be great if you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
Uh, here we see Saul the king has been rejected by God and God has plans to appoint a new king. Uh, the prophet Samuel is sent by God, sent with his oil off to Bethlehem to anoint a new king for God's people. And we get the, 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 the details of the selection process in chapter 16. Uh, Samuel is told that it's going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so they all line up in front of Samuel. And Jesse's there and Jesse's kind of like, meet my boys. Uh, and pick it up with me at chapter 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, first up is Eliab. He's the oldest. He's the biggest. He's tall and impressive like Saul. And Samuel is thinking, this is the one. But look at what happens there in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, many consider that to be the key verse of all of 1 and 2 Samuel. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Don't bet on the big guy, it's saying. Don't assume that it's going to be Mr. Tall, Dark and Handsome. Don't assume that might will prevail because it's through meekness and weakness that God changes the world. So God is not looking at our outward appearance, uh, but he's looking at the heart. And that's the way that God's kingdom works so differently to the world around us. God is actually so often, he's, he's just not impressed by the things that impress us. Having great health, having lots of wealth, having the approval of others, God's not impressed by those things. But what matters to God is where people find their joy that they find their joy and their hope and their confidence in him. People who desire to listen to him and who, who desire to please him and to do his will. That's what God is looking for. And so as Jesse's other sons parade past Samuel here, it's kind of like an episode of The Bachelor, except none of them are chosen. None of them get the rose. So who's left? Verse 11. Verse 11. So Samuel asked, to Jesse, asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the, tending the sheep. Samuel said to him, We will not sit down until he arrives. You see, there is one more. One more son. He's out in the paddock with the animals, and he's just a kid, not a king. Jesse didn't even think he was worth bringing along to meet the prophet Samuel. But verse 12, So Jesse sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had fine appearance, had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint this one. Rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, David, in worldly terms, looks like a dud. God chooses a king who is unimpressive by our standards. Even the description there of his fine appearance and handsome features is actually saying David looks more like a kid from kind of a prepubescent boy band rather than a leader of men with kind of tats and scars. David's just a cute little guy with a red face. But God says, this is the one. He's God's anointed. He's God's chosen king. So let's see what happens when the Philistines turn up the heat. Uh, the battle lines are drawn and the Israelites have a, they have a giant problem. And now uh, Mel's going to read for us uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, verses 4 to 15. So thanks, Mel.
a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over three meters tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Thanks, Mel. Uh, Well, the battle lines are drawn. The Philistines are on one side of the valley uh, and the Israelites are on another. Uh, And the Philistines, uh, out of the Philistine line, steps their champion, a giant. It's Goliath and he's huge. He's in this half a ton of bronze armor and his booming voice is across the valley, trash talking the Israelites. Choose a man, he says, and let's fight it out. You see, Goliath is calling for a champion to head out and fight for Israel in battle. He's calling for someone to come out and challenge him to try and lead Israel to victory. Goliath is really calling for one person. Goliath is calling for Saul, the king. He's calling for him to come out and fight on Israel's behalf. But where is Saul? We'll have a look there in verse 11. It says in verse 11, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. There's Israel's champion, terrified like everyone else. He's he's wetting his pants and hiding in his tent. Now remember, it wasn't that long ago that the Israelites demanded that God give them a king. And this is exactly what they asked for. They said, we want a king over us, then we'll be like the other nations. And here's the key part, with a king to lead us and to go out and go out before us and fight our battles. So I'm going to go out before them and fight their battles. And they got Saul, the biggest, most impressive looking guy in all Israel. So how's he going with that fight our battles part? Well, yeah, not so good. That's the way it is with champions that we find so impressive, isn't it? Uh, back to in chapters 7 and 8, we, we, we saw that Israel was seeking peace and security in a human king. And you remember back when we looked at uh, those chapters, we asked ourselves some important questions. We asked, where do we find our security? In this dog-eat-dog world where instability and insecurity are par for the course, what are we looking 
to keep us safe? What will secure our eternal future? Or who or what will be our champion who will go out and fight our battles for us? Financial security, insurance, relationships, maybe our health or our career. Will they be our champion? Will they go out and protect us? Well, here Israel looked for security in a human king, Saul. And Saul is quivering with fear in his tent. He's refusing to go out and fight for them. And in a lot of ways, Saul is just the same as our champions. When the chips are down, when push comes to shove, when your eternal future is on the line, money or status or health or relationships or the approval of others, they're all going to be quivering in the tent. They won't go out and fight for you. They can't deliver you the hope and the future that you ultimately want. Nothing and no one can save except God's anointed king. And so here on the battlefield, after 40 days of tormenting, God's anointed king finally arrives. We see in verse 17, along comes the boy David, and he he turns up with the delivery of cheese sandwiches for his big brothers, but David immediately sees what's going on. This is a disgrace, he says. I might just be a boy, but if none of you soldiers are up for it, I'll fight him. King Saul is still hiding in his tent. He's he's looking for someone, anyone to take on the giant. And and Saul hears that this boy David is keen. So Saul sends for David and and, and Saul's happy to grasp at any straw he can. They have a a brief chat. Uh, Saul doesn't take much convincing. And all of a sudden he starts to strip off his own XXL tunic and armor. And he puts them on little David, size extra small. Uh, We're going to have our next Bible reading now. Uh, So Jeff is going to read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting at verse 32. Thanks, Jeff. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the poor of the lion from the poor of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day the the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sunk into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Goth and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shariam as far as Goth and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. Thanks, Jeff. Now, David, immediately he ditches the armor. It's too big. And as we see in verse 40, with his shepherd's staff in one hand, five rocks and a sling, uh, with nothing more than a children's toy, uh, he approaches the giant Philistine. Now, I, I know from personal experience the damage that a slingshot can do. The slingshot can certainly give your friend's cat a good fright as it sleeps on the driveway in the sun. Uh, It can also land you in a lot of trouble when it breaks the neighbor's window, Mr. Rocco's window, and your parents find out about it. Uh, But some people are trying to say here that uh, that the sling gave David kind of a technological advantage over the giant, that that this was a a brain versus brawn exercise. Uh, But that's not what's going on here. This, this, This picture here is supposed to be absurd. It's supposed to be like 20 bowmen trying to attempt an invasion of the United States. It's a child's toy facing off against a hardened warrior who is armed to the teeth. Uh, But in the face of the giant, David says the famous words, which tell us how he will defeat Goliath. Uh, You can follow there in verse 45. Uh, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you not with a sling, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. David's saying, you might be the big guy with the big weapons and all the power in the world, but I'm here in the name of the Lord. I'm here as the Lord's anointed. And it's the Lord who will defeat you because it is the Lord that you have defied. And he's going to do it through meek and weak little David, uh, which are big words for a kid with a sling and a few stones. But it's in the end, it's not about the kid, is it? It's about the Lord that the kid trusts in. It's about the Lord that David trusts in. And verse 47 sums it all up for us. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You see, on one side of the valley are the Philistines. Superior firepower, superior size, superior army all round, and they've got the weapon of mass destruction. They've got Goliath. 
But on the other side is Israel, too afraid to show their faces, all but abandoned by their champion and their king Saul. And they've got some kid with some rocks. But this is not any kid. This is the Lord's anointed. He is with God's spirit. He is God's promised king. And you know probably the rest of the story. Little David runs at Goliath. He lets rip with his rock and the rest is history. The giant is down. The whole army goes with him. Fallen before, not David, but fallen before the Lord of Israel. Through the weakness of a small boy, the God of Israel has defeated their enemies. And this is God's pattern, right? Through meekness and weakness, God changes the world. So what are you and I supposed to do with this story? Uh, If we were to place ourselves on the battlefield that day, where would we be? Are we supposed to see ourselves in David? Are we to look at David as a shining example of trusting in God? If we are like David, then God will defeat the Goliaths in our life, that, that we can triumph over the giants that are trying to defeat us. Well, I hate to break it to you this morning, but you're not David. Uh, see, in this passage, uh, it's, it, it, first and foremost, it isn't about you or me. This passage is all about the Lord's anointed. And it's a snapshot of the way that God does things in his kingdom. Because God's kingdom is a a David and Goliath kind of kingdom. Uh, Centuries later, people would welcome another anointed one with the same words that David approaches Goliath with. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they'll say. And this was the anointed one, God's eternal King Jesus. And what happened to him? Well, he ends up dead, hanging by nails on a cross, which is really like a kid heading into battle with a giant with nothing but a few rocks and a sling. It all seemed so foolish and weak, didn't it? It certainly wasn't the champion that the people were welcoming into Jerusalem on that day. And yet, God's anointed seems to have a habit of winning in unexpected ways. Through meekness and weakness, God changes the world, like the resurrection, which defeats death. Like taking the full curse of sin on himself brings about forgiveness for those who trust in him. And that's a story where we don't get to be the hero either. All we get to do is stand back and watch while God's unlikely anointed does all the work, where he does all the fighting on our behalf. And while we don't get to be David in this story, this passage has something to say to us all. I think there's going to be two groups of people here. I think uh, there's the first group who are looking at Christianity and they're looking at Jesus and they're wondering what all the fuss is about. It looks weak and pathetic and outdated and, and not really worth your time. And like the Philistine soldiers mock David across the valley and people look at the crucified Christ and they laugh. But as we see here, no matter how small, no matter how foolish God's anointed might look, he is the king. He is bringing God's kingdom. He is the one the whole world will one day bow down before. So instead of mocking him, we need to kneel before him. Instead of laughing at him, we need to submit to him. Because through meekness and weakness, through the meekness and weakness of Jesus, God has changed the world. And we all need to be ready for that. 
And a lot of us, we are already prepared for that. Then that's the second group of people. Uh, group one, they laugh. Group two, they've laid down their weapons and they submit. They submit to the Lord's anointed. But if that's you, you might still feel a bit like the Israelite soldiers watching David from a distance. We might actually feel a bit embarrassed and awkward about what's happening. Because at first glance, it all looks so unimpressive. But hear these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, Jews demand a miraculous sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You might feel that foolishness. You might feel it in your office or online. You might feel it in your lecture theatre or your lunchroom. But Paul goes on to say, To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Through meekness and weakness, God changes the world. God's strength has always worked like that. It's the mouse that roars. It's the fool that wins. God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. So for those of us who have lined up behind Israel's anointed one, behind King Jesus, can I just finish by saying this to you? Stand tall in your weakness. Stand tall in your weakness. It's great to know we don't have to be impressive, isn't it? And it's great to know that even in our weakness, that's what God loves to use to show his strength. Because through meekness and weakness, God has changed the world. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that through weakness and frailty, you have brought a great victory. We thank you that we can see that in uh, David's victory over Goliath, but we see that even more clearly through your victory over sin and death and evil by Jesus' death on the cross. We thank you that you use meekness and weakness to change the world, to bring about your victory, to bring in your kingdom as you fix up the world that we have broken by our sin. And Lord, help us to have courage to line up behind Jesus, even though the world might laugh, trusting that you will bring all things under him and that through him you'll bring us to your eternal and everlasting kingdom. Amen.